Welcome to the Cop Key Ride Home for Thursday, October 14th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, should you read the spoilers for horror movies before you watch them? Plus, a butterfly species in Finland with parasitic wasps in its belly, and even more wasps inside of that one. And what if instead of lamps, we one day use glowing plants to light our homes? Here are some of the cool things from the news today. So tomorrow, October 15th, Michael Myers is back in Halloween Kills, the 12th installment of the franchise that kickstarted the golden age of slasher films will be playing in theaters across the U.S. and streaming on Peacock. This one is a sequel to 2018's Halloween, which functioned as a sequel to the very first Halloween and basically retconned every other installment. So if you've never seen any of the Halloween movies but are interested in checking out this latest one, you you only have to watch two movies to catch up, not 11. Because, you know, maybe you've avoided watching the Halloween movies because you're just not that into horror or slasher flicks. And if you're thinking about maybe trying to get into them, but still a little bit scared, Joel Cunningham over at Lifehacker has a possible, well, life hack. Read the spoilers. Now, I know, spoilers are like blasphemy in our hyper-connected world right now, but Cunningham argues that knowing what's coming in a horror film in particular can prevent some of the stomach-churning anxiety that the movie is designed to induce on first viewing. It's a pretty steamy take, I know. Cunningham explained himself, quote, I do realize suspense and scares are kind of the point with horror, perhaps more than most genres, and certainly I see the value in a killer twist, no pun intended. But some movies are nastier than others. Encountering the big reveal in The Sixth Sense on opening weekend is a great movie memory. Trying to ward off a stress cramp as Hereditary built to its wild crescendo, less so. But in subsequent viewings of both films, I found the former no less enjoyable and the latter much more enjoyable. In each case, knowing what was going to happen made it easier to appreciate what the movies were doing aside from punching me repeatedly in the gut. Hereditary in particular excels on a spoiled or second viewing. Knowing what lay in store, I was able to fully consider what the movie is really about. Grief, dysfunctional families, general trauma, as I wasn't consumed by the bad feelings. In fact, it was during my initial unpleasant viewing of Midsummer, director Ari Aster's follow-up to Hereditary, that I realized I could essentially turn my first tense viewing into that second, more relaxed viewing instantly by pausing the film and reading the plot summary on Wikipedia. I did just that, and once I knew how everything turned out, I was able to take in the rest without wanting to barf the entire time. Maybe this isn't what the director intended, but it worked out much better for me. End quote. Personally, I kind of loved the wild journey that Midsommar took me on, but I can also barely go a day without thinking about some of the more shocking visuals from it that have been seared into my brain. And the science does kind of back Cunningham up on this. In a series of studies in the early 2010s led by University of California San Diego psychology professor Nicholas Christenfeld, he found that people actually enjoy stories more when they're spoiled for them. Even for mysteries, people enjoyed it more when they had been accidentally spoiled. Across genres and methods of spoiling, Christenfeld's team found that the people who had been spoiled consistently enjoyed the story more. And it makes sense to a certain extent. Christenfeld points out that people still like going to see classics like Romeo and Juliet, even though they clearly know how it ends. 
And so many people watch movies more than once, often liking it more and more each time. He even found that people who were spoiled on a story and then stopped from finishing it still liked it more than being unspoiled or watching the whole thing. Quoting a 2016 write-up of the study, To Kristenfeld, this suggests that spoilers help you know the purpose of the overall narrative so you're able to better incorporate all the details and plot points that get you to the end. If you know the ending as you watch it, you can understand what the filmmaker is doing. You get to see this broader view and essentially understand the story more fluently, explained Kristenfeld. There's lots of evidence that sort of this fluent processing of information is pleasurable. That is, some familiarity with a work of art enables you to enjoy it more. If you're driving up Highway 1 through Big Sur and you know the road really well, you can now peek around and admire the view, the otters frolicking in the surf, said Kristenfeld. But if it's your first time on the road, you have to focus on the twists and turns. End quote. It does kind of make sense, but you still only get one chance to read a book or watch a movie for the first time. Maybe the second reading or viewing will be better, but those are two unique experiences, and I think most people would still like to have their only opportunity for that first viewing experience to be untarnished. Unless you're someone who struggles a bit with certain genres, like horror, and would prefer to skip right to the completely spoiled second viewing experience. Now, does this method seem a bit like science communicator Hank Green's invention of 2D glasses so you can go to 3D movies without getting sick? Yes, absolutely. In the same way that it at first seems completely stupid for someone who gets sick watching 3D movies to purchase a separate device to stop them from getting sick instead of, you know, just not paying extra for the 3D movie, the advice for someone who gets too stressed out by scary movies should be just don't watch the scary movies. But like with 3D movies, you may have a partner or friends who really want to see the 3D version, or maybe a theater only offering the movie in 3D. Scary movies are often a social experience. They also tend to become a part of the cultural zeitgeist. You know, so many horror films have become classics. If you want to get people's references or just try to understand what the big deal is, but also don't want to experience all kinds of anxious and spiraling reactions, reading the plot summaries ahead of time might be your best bet. And from a personal experience, I'd say this totally works. When I watched the first season of Hulu's The Handmaid's Tale, it was harrowing, of course. I mean, totally gut-wrenching and infuriating and sometimes super gross. But having read the book several times before, I was pretty much prepared for all the main plot points. I could tell when they were coming, and without realizing it, I think I was bracing myself for them. I was also less shocked when they came, no matter how much more visceral the showrunners made them on screen. But when I tried watching season two, when the show veers from the novel into its own creation, I couldn't do it. It was just way too horrifying and depressing. You know, without the safety net of knowing what was coming, it was way too overwhelming for me, and I've never gone back. I've also never really been a scary movie fan. It's only in recent years that I've started trying to work my way through the canon and actually begun enjoying horror. And part of why I'm enjoying it may be because I happen to have read a number of cinema studies analyses of so many of them. So even if I don't have the plot summary memorized, I more or less know what I'm getting into, how some of them end, and have prepped myself with some critical perspectives to keep an eye out for instead of getting too sucked into the world of fear on screen. So if you also want to know what everyone else is talking about when it comes to horror movies, especially as this new era of what I like to call prestige horror accelerates, but don't want to experience the stress, anxiety, or all-consuming moroseness that can sometimes go with them, maybe try reading some reviews or plot summaries before you watch. 
And if even that won't help, if you still don't want to venture into the land of horror, but you do want to watch some seasonally thematic movies this month, Lifehacker also ran a listicle this week called 17 Unscary Horror Movies for Halloween Wimps. I think wimps is a bit harsh, but the recommendations stand. Link in the show notes. On a small island in Finland, for the past three decades, there has lived an orange and brown butterfly called the Glanville Fritillary. Looks a tad bit like a monarch, but the Glanville Fritillary is no ordinary butterfly. No, this butterfly sometimes contains parasitic wasps that burst from inside its stomach. Sounds like some kind of arthropod horror film, but it's true. 30 years ago, scientists introduced the Glanville fritillary butterfly to the Finnish island of Sotania, intending to study how the butterflies would disperse and how they'd survive the harsh environment of the island. But, quoting Live Science, they had no idea that a trio of nested parasites would come along for the ride, with two parasites living inside another parasite which itself nested inside some of the butterflies. The latter parasites, the larvae of the parasitic wasps Hyposoder horticola, eat the Glanville caterpillars they are injected into from the inside out, erupting from their host's abdomen to spin a cocoon around the caterpillar's corpse for pupation. Two more species of parasites nest inside H. horticola. The second is a hyperparasitoid, parasitic wasps called Mesochorus stigmaticus. The third species is a bacterium, Wolbachia pipientis which makes H. horticola more susceptible to M. stigmaticus. If all three stowaways are aboard a caterpillar host, H. horticola kills the caterpillar before being killed by M. stigmaticus. The hyperparasite burrows out ten days later, consuming its way through the bacteria-ridden flesh of the first wasp parasite and then the carcass of the caterpillar. End quote. While this sounds like an unfortunate situation that would quickly render the butterflies non-existent, they have somehow managed to survive for 30 years, and the three parasites have as well. A new study published over the summer in the journal Molecular Biology analyzed the genetics of the parasitic wasps, and that study revealed something even more remarkable. The butterfly, the Glanville fritillary, did actually almost go extinct several times over the last few decades, which scientists would expect to lead to low genetic diversity. But, says lead author Dr. Anne Duploy, quote, This butterfly somehow seems to recover from isolated population crashes, and the genetic diversity in the region is still impressively high, despite all the bottlenecks the butterfly has been through. End quote. One region... One reason for the population crashes is that the butterflies exclusively eat just two meadow plants while they're caterpillars, so if one of those becomes inaccessible, they're in danger. They're also highly impacted by events like drought and other harsh climatic events. But, quoting from The Guardian, the parasites may have survived on the island by virtue of their superior flying skills. Unlike many butterflies, the Glanville fritillary is a poor disperser, and individuals living naturally on neighboring islands cannot fly more than 4.3 miles across open water to Setania to top up this population. But the tiny parasitic wasp H. horticola appears to have been able to fly or at least be lifted by strong winds to move between islands on the Åland Archipelago, an autonomous region of Finland where Swedish is the official language. 
Since H. horticola was accidentally introduced to Suetonia, the wasp has been discovered on other islands to the north, where it was previously not recorded. These individuals show similar genotypes to Suetonia, suggesting they originated from the wasps accidentally introduced to that island. End quote. Dupois says the curious case of the Glanville fritillary and their parasites is a warning for all research teams hoping to reintroduce species to certain environments or the more rare instances of restoring species altogether. While those teams usually have good intentions, increasing biodiversity, assisting an alien ecosystem, there is still so much you may not know about the species and how it will interplay with the habitat it's being reintroduced to. And other organisms, like these parasitic wasps, can so easily hop along for the ride. A team at MIT has just created their second generation of glow-in-the-dark plants, bringing us one step closer to living our avatar reality with glowing plants filling out homes and gardens instead of traditional lighting fixtures. So this team first started working on glow-in-the-dark plants several years ago, releasing their first attempt in 2017. The plants now, however, are ten times brighter. And glow-in-the-dark isn't exactly the right phrasing. They embed nanoparticles in the plant leaves to create a light that can be repeatedly charged by an LED. Quoting MIT News, their first generation of light-emitting plants contained nanoparticles that carry luciferase and luciferin, which work together to give fireflies their glow. Using these particles, the researchers generated watercress plants that could emit dim light, about one-thousandth the amount needed to read by for a few hours. In the new study, senior author Michael Strano and his colleagues wanted to create components that could extend the duration of the light and make it brighter. They came up with the idea of using a capacitor, which is a part of an electrical circuit that can store electricity and release it when needed. In the case of glowing plants, a light capacitor can be used to store light in the form of photons, then gradually release it over time. To create their light capacitor, the researchers decided to use a type of material known as a phosphor. These materials can absorb either visible or ultraviolet light and then slowly release it as a phosphorescent glow. The researchers used a compound called strontium aluminate, which can be formed into nanoparticles as their phosphor. Before embedding them in the plants, the researchers coated the particles in silica, which protects the plant from damage. The particles, which are several hundred nanometers in diameter, can be infused into the plants through the stomata, small pores located on the surface of leaves. The particles accumulate in a spongy layer called the mesophyll, where they form a thin film. A major conclusion of the new study is that the mesophyll of a living plant can be made to display these photonic particles without hurting the plant or sacrificing lighting properties, the researchers say. End quote. Charged with just 10 seconds of exposure to a blue LED, the plants emit light for an hour, though it is brightest in the first five minutes. The team successfully tested the light capacitor in several different species, including watercress, basil, tobacco, and the Thailand elephant ear, which has huge leaves that could make for a particularly effective light. And from all the tests that they've done so far, the infused nanoparticles really don't seem to be affecting the plant's health or function. As Sheila Kennedy, an MIT professor of architecture who's worked with the research team, said, Creating ambient light with the renewable chemical energy of living plants is a bold idea. It represents a fundamental shift in how we think about living plants and electrical energy for lighting, end quote. 
I mean, yeah, think about it. Trees could become self-powered streetlights. Bushes lining sidewalks could illuminate when it's dark. There's all kinds of potential functions, both in situations where we already tend to have plants and in places where we could add them as a cleaner light source. And plus, it just looks freaking cool. I would be all over this. If you want to see what the plants look like, the 2017 MIT News article in the show notes has a video from the first generation of the plants. The team is now working to combine the methods from the two generations of their glowing plants in hopes that implementing both at once will produce even brighter and longer-lasting results. So I didn't see this one coming, but in a way it kind of makes sense. According to a new study published in the journal New Media and Society last week, out of Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, WhatsApp, and Messenger, Twitter is the only one that will make you less likely to believe in COVID-19 conspiracy theories. All of the others have a positive effect on pandemic-twinged conspiratorial thinking. And I kind of think this is both good news and bad news for Twitter users, honestly. You know, unlike behemoths like Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram, which I wish had been included in the study, Twitter still kind of retains a bit of a community feeling on it in the way that Tumblr and Reddit kind of do. If that's not to say that everyone's in it together or has anywhere close to the same beliefs on Twitter, but there's very much a sense that when you're on Twitter, you're talking to other people on Twitter, not necessarily necessarily just your followers, and that the Twitter conversation isn't really going to leave Twitter. It has a lot of shared language and references that transcend political differences in a way that you don't see on Facebook or Instagram these days, if you ever really did. References that no one off of Twitter gets at all. Oddly enough, it's kind of not as siloed as other platforms in terms of its users' relationships to each other, but it is more siloed in terms of its users versus the rest of the world. And that sometimes means that people who spend a lot of time on Twitter have a hard time realizing what people not on Twitter are aware of or care about. And most are self-aware about this, but also sometimes tend to get it slightly wrong in practice. This happens with a lot of social media platforms. It's not a Twitter-exclusive thing at all. But Twitter, for a platform that is often included with those big Facebook and Google-owned ones, really does still function more like some of the B-side platforms. In part because, like the other B-side platforms, it tends to be a particular type of person who is an active Twitter user. The platform skews very heavily towards journalists, politicians, media professionals, academics. It's often an outlier in polling, where Facebook and Instagram might more accurately reflect the general public's leanings. So it's good that Twitter is apparently the one platform from this study that doesn't encourage someone to believe COVID-19 conspiracy theories. But given that part of that might be because Twitter has become such an impenetrable bubble for its users, I'm not really sure if this should altogether be counted as a feather in Twitter's cap. But at the same time, I don't know, maybe if you've got someone in your life who's spending too much time on Facebook and starting to spout conspiracy theories, try to get them to spend more time on Twitter. I can't believe I'd ever recommend that for someone, but hey, maybe it would work. But with all that said, that is it from me for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow. 
When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.